So the, 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 the title of the message this morning is, Which Way to Greatness and Glory? Say that with me. Which Way to Greatness and Glory? If you were at all with us during the Advent season, um, you remember we went with Matthew on a journey to, to look at the origins of the birth and the life of King Jesus. We've seen how Matthew, a former tax collector, called to become a follower of Jesus, has so arranged his gospel under the leadership of the Holy Spirit to make it absolutely clear who Jesus is and what Jesus is about. I mean, he's as explicit and clear as verse one when he says, Jesus the Messiah, anointed ruler or king, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And you remember, if you were with us in the Advent series, that these are, this one verse starting the gospel of Matthew lays the framework and the groundwork for all that Jesus will then do, fulfill, and be. He will be the king who is from the line of David and also the seed that God promised Abraham through whom the whole world would be blessed. All of that's wrapped up in verse one. This is just all summary. So next, Matthew will show us after this announcement that how Jesus not only fulfills the ancient promises, but how he'll be qualified to be a categorically different kind of king. He'll be born of the Holy Spirit. He won't be like any other king that has darkness and rebellion and treason in his heart who will rule for his own purposes and means. Matthew 2 and 3 then take us on a journey that shows us how Jesus finds himself from his birth in hostile enemy territory. We, we remember meeting Herod, and Herod put a death warrant on this rightful king of the Jews, and now he has to go into Egypt, just like Israel. So we see Matthew showing us that Jesus is fully enmeshed and entrenched in the story of God's covenant people, Israel. He's the son of David, the king, and he's the son of Abraham, the seed of promise that is going to bless the world. He is like every, uh, he's like unlike any other king because he's like us in his humanity, but he is utterly pure and devoted to the purposes of his father on the earth. And then we meet and realize that Jesus and the idea of a king being born on the earth, who is the rightful king, does not go over very well for those who hold positions of authority and power. And we all said amen. Put it another way, the kingdom of self is heavily guarded territory. If you're sitting to someone next to you that has very high walls around the kingdom of self, just elbow them and say, he's talking about you, dude. The kingdom of self is heavily guarded territory. After Matthew narrates the story of Jesus taking the moves that Israel took in the wilderness and then Egypt and then out of Egypt and then fleeing for his life and then born in Bethlehem, the city of David. and He connects all of these promises. Then we meet John, the wild-haired, crazy-dressed, locust-and-honey-eating prophet announcing to all of Israel to repent, to wake up, to turn from their sin, and to be in on what God is about to bring to Israel in their time. That the long and hoped for kingdom was breaking in. It is a greater exodus. It is a greater deliverance from exile. This is the moment we've all been waiting for. This is John the, John the Baptist's ministry. And so Jesus emerges onto the scene after 30 years of silence. The airwaves are silent except for one event when he was 12. 
And he himself goes to this wild, crazy prophet John to be baptized, which is to say, to fully identify with Israel and her story, with your story and my story. And we know the passage that Jesus, when he was baptized, that the heavens were open and he saw the Spirit of God descend like a dove and landed or alighted on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. There it is. So we know from this passage, because we're gonna get to our passage in Matthew 4, this is our quick introduction, that from this passage we know that Jesus is God's beloved son. Now the ancient promise to God's son is that he will be king over all of the earth. Read verse eight with me. Ask of me and I will make with me the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. So when the father speaks over his son, like we spoke a few weeks ago, he's declaring his rightful inheritance is the earth. He is the king of God the father's choosing. So you're my son, but whom I love With you I'm well pleased. This passage, this declaration of the Father is riddled throughout the servant songs of the prophet Isaiah. That one would come who would be totally pleasing to Yahweh, the God who saves, by this one being a servant of his purposes, not a rebel against his purposes. And so Isaiah says, here is my servant. Sounds like the Father, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. And so we see the Father's declaration declares that he is the king, the son, who will inherit all of the kingdoms of the world. But he's also a servant who Isaiah goes on to say, before crucifixion was even an invented method for criminal capital punishment, see my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance would be so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness. And here we see the dichotomy of the way in which God would bring his kingdom to bear on the earth. You have a son who was a king, the royal son, of whom the nations and the earth itself are his possession. But you also have a son who is simultaneously the servant that pleases the Lord. And Isaiah helps us to see that this servant will please the Lord, not just by doing good deeds and by doing occasional miracles, but by himself being raised up in crucifixion so that God's purposes would come to bear on the earth and in all creation. This is wrapped up in the baptism story. So, in light of this royal servant son, the king who will suffer, we get to our passage. Oh, that was a good one there, too. So, in Jesus' day, there were really four camps or categories. Those who had an idea of how they thought God's rule and God's reign and God's kingdom would come. There was this group called the Pharisees. They were this group that was 
totally devoted to the law and to keeping all of the rules and regulations. They were so devoted that the 613 laws were not enough. They invented hundreds and hundreds of more around those laws so that they wouldn't even get close to breaking the actual law. The Pharisees believed God would come and establish his kingdom through legalism by keeping the law perfectly. How many have ever been down that path and it's a dead-end road? Then there's the Essenes, this community that thought, you know what, Israel is so corrupt, we're being occupied by foreign, ar- foreign army and military, that you know what, the solution for God to finally get, a- get about delivering Israel and to setting her up as the, you know, on this hill and to being a mediator of the blessing of God on all the earth is to escape and withdraw. Has anyone ever done that when the going gets tough, to just withdraw and escape? And they thought, man, if we could just get away from the sin, then maybe God would come. But how many know you can't escape it because it's on the inside? Then there were the zealots. Man, most of us can probably identify with them who thought that God would come via revolution. Many revolution movements in and around the time of Jesus who thought, you know what? I know what God's waiting for. He's waiting for us to get bigger swords to kick the guy out. They thought viva revolution. And how many know the problem is you chop the leader's head off Oh, someone's going to grow up right behind them. That's the way evil works. It recycles revenge. And then there were the Sadducees and the priests, these who thought that the way God, you know what, we don't even care if God's kingdom really comes because they were those who had the power in the temple. They had prestige and privilege. So they thought, you know what, it's not so bad. If God wants to come, that's cool. We like the title that is after the comma of our name. So these four groups all have these ideas, how is God going to remake the world? And Matthew has already shown us he's going to remake the world through the royal servant's son, who's the promise of Abraham, whom the father loves and in whom the father is pleased. And right after that declaration, in the midst of this context, four streams, how is he going to come? Jesus himself will come to terms on how he will establish his father's kingdom on the earth in the very next story. Who knows what story that is in Matthew chapter four? The story of Jesus in the wilderness temptations. So if you'd stand with me, let's read this scripture. I'll read it out loud, but let's stand in honor of God's word, and then we'll just dive right in and make some points. Then Jesus was led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted A better translation is test, and I'll tell you why in a second. By the devil, the adversary. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was, come on, somebody. Like, (laughs) duh, right? 40 days. Okay, anyhow, I love scripture. The tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, it's written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Isn't that something that the devil knows for the Hebrew scriptures? We'll talk about it in a second. Jesus answered him, it is also written, buddy, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to the very high mountain and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All of this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan. Read this with me. For it is written, 
Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Amen. Then the devil left him and the angels came and attended him. Father, in Jesus' name, just speak to us now as we just humbly look and reflect on what you want to show us through this temptation story. In Christ's name, we all said amen Amen. and amen. So with the background of Matthew, this royal servant son who is king, who the father loves and whom the father is pleased, we have a king who is a servant. How many know that only in Jesus these two seemingly wildly opposing ideas find a new and startling reality actualized through a human on the earth through his life? So what is the first thing when Jesus is baptized? What did the father just speak over the son? You are my son. Come on, a little bit louder. You're my son whom I love. And so what is the very first temptation that the enemy lobs at Jesus in the wilderness when he's at his lowest point? Remember, he's fasting for 40 days. Who's ever been on a long fast? Who's ever been really, really weak and grumpy and irritable? And it's like, okay, okay, many of us. Okay, And we're getting ready to do a fast, by the way. Nice segue, because we're going to enter into the Lenten season preparing for Easter. What does he do? He tempts him. At the place of his what? Identity. If you're the son of God. So what we see here, I'm just going to say it up front so that you begin to think through these through the various temptation narratives. I believe that central to what the enemy is doing to Jesus is this. He is trying to get Jesus to usurp the wisdom and the authority of his father who from before creation knew that the world would be remade at the cost of the life of his own son. And what you have at every temptation, and I'm going to show it to you in a minute, is the enemy trying to get Jesus at his intended destination apart from having to go to travel the journey of the cross. What you have in every temptation is Jesus There's another path and another way for you to be king and to be ruler and Lord that doesn't involve a cross, that doesn't involve suffering. And it may not appear so on surface level, but I hope to show you at every turn, you're going to realize, whoa, the enemy is pretty cunning and clever. So what's the first temptation? Turn the stones into Bread. How many know that if you're the son of God, who is the creator of heaven and earth, that turning stones into bread probably wouldn't be too hard for you? But the only problem is, and the enemy knows this, that if you can turn one stone into bread, you can turn a thousand stones into bread. So that many know, and this is obvious, that if you can feed the world, you could rule the world. Say it with me. If you could feed the world... You could rule the world, plain and simple. So what appears as a surface-level temptation, Jesus knows that the enemy is cunning, that if he gives in to turning those stones into bread, he himself will not have an opportunity to be the living bread to give his life to not just fill your gut, but to save and transform your soul. If Jesus turns stones into bread, he will not have an opportunity to then become bread that gives life to the world. So take the bread, Jesus. You feed the world, you'll rule the world. And what does Jesus do to overcome this temptation? Bro, I've got orders. 
I'm the living bread, John 6, 51, that came down from heaven. And the only way that the world can actually be nourished is if I give my life to feed them with the bread of my body, the bread of my life. And if I turn these stones into bread, I can turn all of the stones in Judea and the wilderness into bread. And if I do that, people want to follow me for reasons other than the reason I was born on the earth, which was to save the world through my death. So temptation number one, Christ Jesus being tempted to use his godness for his own selfish pleasure, for his own flesh and appetite. And here you see Jesus fulfilling Philippians 2, 6 and 7. He never used his equality with God to his own what? Say it with me. Come on. He never exploited or used, don't think for a minute, even though he was fully God, fully man, he did not have power to do any, because he did. But he never usurped the authority of his father and the wisdom of his father, which was to be the servant who was humbly submitted to the father's will and plan, which was to save the world through his death. Are you tracking with me? So test number one, did Jesus pass or fail? He passed. I've got orders that come from my father's mouth. The true bread is for me, John 4, 34, to do the will of my papa. So even though I'm hungry, Satan, and I know what you're trying to incite me to do, rule the world without going to cross to save the world, no thank you. My food is to do the will of my father. I'm living off a different food supply source than you are. The world may be in famine of hearing the word of God, Amos 8, but not me. My ears are open and attuned to Papa's voice. Amen. What's up with the next temptation? Oh, Jesus quotes this, the scriptures again. He finds himself in Israel's story. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and to, whoa, test you in order, read it with me, to know what was in your heart whether or not you would keep his commands. So here's the son, the father, breaking open heaven, and immediately the spirit, remember, it's the spirit that led him here. Come on, someone say, the spirit led him here. Why? Jesus gets an opportunity in this test to show the father that no matter how hungry my gut, my heart is set to obey you. No matter how difficult the road ahead, Father, I trust your wisdom, and I'm not going to buy in to the one who has incited every human before me to usurp your authority and your wisdom. And we all said amen. amen. And he goes on to say, then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand. If you're the son of God, just jump off, levitate, all the crowds will love you. Come on, how many know that'd be pretty rad to see? Can we just be real? <laughs> And I believe that the, the essence of the temptation here, and then obviously the enemy twists scripture, which I just want to say a, a quick point. It is not enough to know the scripture. You've got to know the one to whom the scriptures point. Even the demons, James 2 helps us know that there is only one God. Right? In fact, who throughout all of the gospel narratives are usually the first ones to identify the nature and true condition of who Jesus is? The demonic, <laughs> son of God. And Jesus always has to tell them to shh. No one else knows. You guys know. You can use scripture and lob scripture all day long. The Pharisees, John 5, 39 and 40, 
They memorized probably almost the whole Hebrew scripture. Many of Jesus' day were bright, and they didn't have Twitter and Instagram and YouTube and Netflix. Their brains actually had a capacity to hold scripture, right? Anyway, but, yeah. so, but Jesus tells them, you guys think that the scriptures are what give you life. It's not the scriptures. It's who the scriptures point you to. It's me. So even though this, this Satan misquotes of Psalm, and he tries to incite Jesus to just do the scripture dance. Jesus won't have it because at the end of the day, scripture is a means to an end and the end is to encounter the one to whom they point. You can know, you can know chapters and books and still be cold and, and you could be off-putting because you don't know the one to whom they point. That's from somebody who loves the scriptures. I love them, but I realize the scriptures are not a person. They point to a person. And that person, using the scriptures and the spirit, right, and his grace and his mercy, transforms as something that the enemy could not experience. All he could do is give him a text. And Jesus just says, you know what? The essence of this temptation is if I just do the miracles and the spectacular, then the crowds will believe me. How many know that is a common temptation? If we just do the big and the great and the grand, then the crowd will say Surely you are God. The only problem with this temptation, and Jesus will see it play out in his life in the next chapters of the Gospel of Matthew, that crowds are fickle. Come on, somebody say amen. amen. The crowd in, in Matthew 21 that shouts for his coronation, Hosanna, son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, will just a few short chapters later become the same crowd that says crucify him. The same crowd that says, whoa, he does miracles, he's spectacular, he has all power and authority, is the very crowd that will, God will, their hearts are hardened, and they will incite for Jesus to be put to death by the Roman authority. So Jesus knows the temptation to do something big and glitzy and glamorous and spectacular, although he will do the miraculous. Come on, someone say amen. He knows that miracles are not enough. Because at the end of the day of being wowed, you're still left with the reality of will you choose to follow the one who is the miracle working God or will you just be a spectator and a fan to admire his power and authority? Jesus quotes from the scriptures again in Deuteronomy chapter six and he says this, the temptation is to, use, to get at greatness and glory by using power to promote yourself and prove that you are to the masses that you can do the spectacular. But Jesus quotes Deuteronomy chapter six, read it with me. Do not put the Lord your God to the test as you did at Massa. So you have to go back to the story. In essence, in the wilderness wanderings, the children of Israel at Massa come to Moses and they say, is God even with us on this journey? I believe this temptation is to get Jesus to believe a different story, that God is only with you when you're on the mountain and when things are going well and when the crowds are following you, and then to doubt his presence with you in the grind and the suffering and the adversity and difficulty of life. How many know I'm thankful for the mountains, but much of life is lived through the valleys going for the next mountain? If we're honest, the essence of this temptation is for Jesus to doubt that God the Father will be with him, not just in the big and the huge, but in the small, behind closed doors with just his disciples, when it's just he and the Father early in the morning hours praying and interceding. 
He wants Jesus to doubt the Father's presence. But Jesus says, no, thank you. I will not, like Israel, doubt his goodness and presence because my Father is with me always. So for test number two, do the great, do the powerful. Prove your amazing miracle working so that the masses will praise you. Does Jesus test? Does he pass the test or does he fail? You see, at the end of the day, there's always a way that seems right to man, and very seldom will man choose the way of suffering love to change the world. There's a way that always seems right. Feed the world, rule the world. There's a way that seems right to man. Jump off the temple so that they'll think you're amazing and bow their hearts and heads. But in the end, Jesus knows it won't go deep enough because what humanity needs is not to be wowed. Humanity needs to be saved and redeemed and transformed. Humanity doesn't just need, listen, we are the most overly stimulated, I mean, Star Wars, I mean, smartphone invasion of sensors. Jesus knows if I jump off the temple, Just like if he would have turned the stones into bread, his life could not have become the living bread to feed the world. If Jesus jumps off the temple, you know what happens? The reality is he may have garnered a couple fans and followers, but the proximity, purity, and... I had three Ps. It was a good preaching moment. Anyway, Jesus knows that if he jumps off the temple, that he won't have opportunity to go and to allow his body to be broken so that the curtain of the temple could be torn so that all of humanity could be in close, proximal relationship with the Father. If he jumps off the temple, the temple and its system still runs. And in that system, it is not all opportunity, equal access, all to the very presence and beauty and love and holiness of God. It's only for a select few, and quite frankly, God's not even in that system any longer, amen? If Jesus jumps off the temple, he will not have an opportunity to radically overhaul the entire temple system, which was to usher in God's great desire and dream to dwell in the hearts of humanity from the beginning. If he jumps off, he won't get to go to the cross. And Jesus, it says in Hebrews chapter 10, that his torn body made access for the world to come into the very presence of God through him. More is at stake than just doing a little levitation trick. It's Jesus choose a different way than the cross to greatness and glory. And then finally, again, the devil took him up to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All of this I will give you, he said, if you'll just bow down and worship me. Just a small caveat, right? (laughs) Worship me and I'll give you the world. But Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and angels came and attended him. So we have the two options so far. Leslie Newbegin brilliantly writes, many think the kingdom comes through solely economic means. That's the stone to bread. Shake your head at me. If you just have enough provision, the world will turn around and then it'll be saved. Amen? The economic route. If we just have enough, if we have enough smarts and we get enough resources, then we'll be able to fix the problem of injustice. And, and how many know God wants us to be strategic, but a solely economic route is not what will turn the world upside down, or rather up, right side up. 
And then obviously we just looked at temptation number two, um, the, the spectacular, miraculous route is not enough. And here is the most famous route that almost every king and or queen has taken from the beginning, the political military route. Jesus says, the, Satan says, I'll give you all the kingdoms. Just worship me. And there's this deep, entrenched belief that if we just had bigger, bigger, better, stronger, more dynamic, political, military, then we would rule the world. The only problem is that world history tells us different because there's always some other guy on a horse coming behind you. Just read human history. Jesus knows and sees from surface level what Satan is asking him. Worship me and I'll give you all of the kingdoms of the world so that you can control their military and their might and their power. One has to ask, how did Satan even have the right and does this question even come from a place of validity that Satan could give Jesus the kingdoms of the world? What do you think? Well, we have to understand the nature of worship. Worship is giving authority. What we worship, we give authority and ownership to over our lives. So when we talk about worship as a church family, we are not just talking about singing or about praying or about doing religious activity. We're ultimately talking about that place of ultimate allegiance and affection of your heart. So does Satan actually have a right to offer Jesus the kingdoms of this world? Yes or no? Yes, because in the beginning, humanity forfeited our right to rule with God and on behalf of God. Remember the original temptation, take the fruit, you'll know good and evil. They did not know the cost on the other side of being able to name good and evil, which was giving up their authority and their role to be those who would rule and subdue and fill the earth with fruitfulness, they gave their God-given right to rule and authority over to the one who incited them to rebellion. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, which is to say, all have usurped the authority and ways and will and purposes of God. And when we usurp his authority, we give that authority to another. He's the adversary, the one who comes to accuse and the one who comes to incite rebellion against our good creator. How can Satan offer the kingdoms of the world because all of the kingdoms of the world function out of the way that seems right to man? And the way that seems right to man, Proverbs 14, 12, ends in death. No one who is born of a woman by natural means is fit to rule now in the kingdom of the kingdoms of the world without repentance, which is to say, righting the wrongness of our worship around ourselves and now worshiping rightly the one who alone is worthy of all glory, honor, power, and praise. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So Jesus, this temptation is unbelievable temptation because at this point, Jesus has not usurped the Father. And all of the other usurpers, those who have rebelled against God's wisdom, will, and ways, they've given their authority that the, the Satan, his deceiving, conniving, manipulative, violent, vindictive, murderous, oppressive, racist, unjust spirit has infected and infused every human government. And Satan's saying, even though you've not usurped, if you just 
get right to the point and worship me, all of the kingdoms that I'm influencing and infusing with my agenda of death, darkness, despair, and hatred, I will now give you all of those kingdoms. The only thing you got to do is just worship me. Give my words and my agenda greater weight and worth than the word of your father that he spoke at your baptism. And Jesus knows this is stinking intense. The temptations have ratcheted it up considerably. What will Jesus do? Jesus knows that this is the most intense temptation because if Jesus fails here and gives in to the, remember the question of the message is how does one get What is the way one must take to greatness and glory? The enemy is giving him all the options. This temptation is most intense because if Jesus fails here, God's original vision for humanity and to restore humanity and all of creation through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, if Jesus fails here and comes into power over the kingdoms without suffering death, paying for the penalty, releasing the world from the clutches of the power of sin and Satan and hell in the grave, then God the Father's agenda and plan for humanity to be restored to their original image and job, to be in relationship with him and to rule and fill the earth with his purposes and glory. If Jesus fails here, we're only left with one more war, one more act of violence and genocide and oppression and the endless cycle of destructions on the backs of every other kingdom that arises will continue to spin out of control. But thanks be to God in Christ that he chooses the wisdom of his father and not the temptation of the adversary. Thanks be to God that instead of saying, you know what, I want the easy way out. I'll just I'll give you a little bit of my heart allegiance if you'll give me the kingdom. He says, thank you, but no thank me. The kingdoms are already mine, but I've got to go pay and make the way of God available to all of humanity, which is restoration through my blood, through my death, and through the resurrection and the power of the Spirit. I want to restore the image of God in every man, woman, boy, and girl. And if I give in here, none of that becomes a reality on the earth. I will not bite Satan. I'm the true bread, but I've got to go to the cross to feed the world. That's the way I'll become great and come into my glory. No, thank you, Satan. I am the true temple, but my body has to be torn so that humanity can become a place where I dwell. No, thank you, Satan. The nations are already mine because I'm the beloved son that the Father has selected. But I have to allow my worship of God to take me to the desired end of my Father, which is to be a sin sacrifice for all of the world, all of creation, where through my death I will right every wrong and I will usher in a new world in the midst of the world that already spins and flows. I am going to restore humanity to their place, their rightful place that the enemy from the beginning has incited usurpers who have not believed in the wisdom of God and decided to rule their own kingdom their own way. Jesus says, thanks, but no thanks. Right here before I even preach my first sermon, if I blow it in the wilderness, nothing makes sense of my life and ministry. In short... The temptation narrative in Matthew shows Jesus being tempted to inaugurate and to bring his kingdom through any other means than through the cross of his suffering and of his self-emptying love. 
But thank be to God, he chooses the way of the cross. Which way does King Jesus take to come into greatness and glory? This is the most relevant question for our cultural stinking moment right now. What is greatness? What is glory? There's a way that seems right to man. If you choose that way, it may be promising for a few steps, but just around the bend is death. But if you choose the wisdom of God in Christ, and you say, you know what, I'm going to follow the one who paved a way by being the way, by denying myself to rule, the right to rule my own kingdom and life, and I'm going to, you know what, I'm going to worship rightly like Jesus worshiped rightly in the garden, in the wilderness. You choose that path. It may not seem right to your natural intellect, but it's the way that leads to life, life everlasting with no shelf life on and on forever. Why does Jesus, why is this last temptation so intense? Well, it's, I love this. Look at the restoration. Jesus Christ who's the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler, look at that, of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. And he's made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father. To him be glory forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. The disciples don't understand. Remember when Jesus finally asks them, you know, because right here Jesus is being tested to believe in, in, in his own calling. And the disciples, this is only in Matthew 4, our story, the disciples will not get it, even like until after resurrection, and he hits them over the head. Come on, somebody, been one of those disciples who's slow, slow to learn. But there's this moment in the Gospels where it's like divine comedy explosion, where Jesus asks his disciples, hey, who do, you, who do people say that I am? Remember that story, Matthew 16? Who do they say that I am? John the Baptist, Elijah, you're like a prophet. Then Peter, you know, by the Spirit, you're the king. Jesus is like, yes, God showed you that, didn't he? Yeah. And then right after that, Jesus gets, gets ready to tell him the wisdom of the Father, which is he's going to be a king who dies. And what is the very first thing Jesus says to Peter? After he says, I'm, you're crazy, Jesus, kings don't die. They ride big horses. Right? Come on, somebody. With guns, and they choose the military route, the, the economic route, or the spectacular route. They, no king would rightfully choose the path of self-emptying, sacrificial love. And Jesus says, get behind me. He can hear the influence of the adversary in the voice of one of his boys to try to choose another path but the cross to come to greatness and glory. You don't have in mind the things of God, he tells Peter, but the things of who? Man. There's always a way that seems right. But in the end, to us, it'll lead in death. Thanks be to God. Right here at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he overcomes the testing in the wilderness so that he can establish the kingdom of God on the earth through his life, his death, and his resurrection. Closing thought. The only way forward in this moment of history 
as a church, we are being forced to answer the question, what does greatness and glory look like and how do we get it? As Christ followers, we can no longer afford to boast in the name of Jesus, sort of like a flag over our agenda and not pursue to become like the nature of Jesus. We can no longer afford, in form, I am a Christ follower, but in functional reality in my life, I'm not pursuing the way of self-emptying sacrificial love through the cross. The, the times are too pregnant with possibility for both good and or bad, but the cultural moment we find ourselves in is we're in the wilderness with Jesus. And the enemy says, church, Choose a path of greatness or glory, even for the name of God, but choose a path like the enemy to Jesus. Choose a path other than denying yourself, carrying your cross, emptying your own rights to serve your own purposes and your own kingdom and your own comfort and your own bottom line. Choose any other path. And we as a church of Jesus in this hour, unequivocally, if Jesus is Lord of heaven and earth, we say, thanks but no thanks. All of those ways, they seem wise up front, but they always end in death. I'm gonna choose the way that Jesus says is wisdom, and that is the way of the cross. That is the way of emptying myself of my own right to rule, about building an existence around my own comfort and safety and security, and saying, you know what? I'm gonna trust the king of the cosmos, who in his temptations overcame and made a brand new way to flourish and to become great and to experience his glorious presence, and it's called the way of the cross. I Listen, Paul says it like this, I have been crucified with Christ. Paul was not going around getting his booty whipped and thrown into prison and naked. and He wasn't doing it because he was just sort of into Jesus. He was doing it because he met Jesus. And he realized that the allegiance Jesus demands and commands is not just in word or brand or slogan, but it's in a heart that is ravished by his love and a heart given over to full worship and allegiance and trust. I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and what? and gave himself for me. And now as we get infused with this glorious gospel, we realize we will not love, we will not live for ourselves, but we will give ourselves away for the blessing and benefit of others. If you agree, say amen. amen. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, when Christ calls a man or a woman, he bids them come and die. Why, because he's grumpy? No, the, the self he's calling us to die to is the self that has only perpetuated death on the earth from the beginning. The sinful, selfish, self-absorbed, me, me, me heart. Jesus says, die to that thing so I can stuff you with my life. I can give you a new name, a new nature, a new hope, a new future, a new family. I can give you everything. Oh, I'll just say it. A new creation, but you got to let go of the old world in which you are Lord and come into the new world of which I am Lord. Yeah. Which path will we choose together? Amazing. Last verse. Let's read this out loud. Oh, cool. It's not even there. That's a song. That's not a verse. John closes like this. He says, do not love the world or anything in the world. It, he's saying the ways of the world. He obviously wants us to love the world. Are you tracking with me? 
Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world and its ways, the love of the Father is not in them. Is that pretty clear? If you love the world and its ways, the love of my Father is not in you. Let me say it again. If you love the world and its ways and it operates, the love of God is not in you. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, bread. The lust of his eyes, the spectacular, jump off a temple. And the boasting of what he has and does, I'll give you all the kingdoms. Comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. And in three little verses, John the Beloved in 1 John 2, 15, he narrates the temptation story for us. Jesus didn't love the way of the world. Come on, somebody. He didn't choose the way of conventional wisdom. He chose the way of the will of the Father. And when you and I choose the will and the way of the Father, we, like Jesus, will experience life as it was meant to be lived. Is it costly? Are you kidding me? Of course, we serve a slain, crucified king. But what is always on the other side of crucifixion and death? Life. Resurrection. Victory. Overcoming. What is the way to greatness and glory for us as a church and as the people of God in this hour? It is to bear the stigma of saying, you know what, I don't just identify with Jesus in word. He has my full allegiance. I'm gonna carry my cross and follow him through all of life. Even when it's tough, I'm gonna look to the one who was slain on my behalf and know the, king, the way the kingdom came is still the way the kingdom comes today through sons and daughters who carry their cross and choose love and God's wisdom over the wisdom and ways of this world. If Jesus, if the enemy can just derail us here, it was enough for Jesus to carry the cross. I'm good. He can derail the whole project. So, will we learn the lessons of the wilderness? The wilderness teaches us three things. We can trust God's provision. Come on, who needs provision today? That's the stones. We can trust God's presence. Who needs to know and be assured that God is with them today? And we can trust that if we give God the place of preeminence and worship, he is faithful and just to bring us to the end of our days, not regretting for choosing the way that seemed right to us, but by worshiping rightfully, and we will become heirs of his eternal kingdom forever and ever and ever and ever. Choose the cross. This is why the basic message of discipleship. I mean, it's, not, it's like before 101. If you want to follow me, you've got to pick up your cross. I mean, it's the most basic gospel message. Today, I hope you have some background to that call. Choose the cross because I did. And when you choose the cross, you experience life as it was meant to be lived. Stand with me. Jesus overcame the temptation every test so that you and I could choose to walk in his footsteps. Amen? So Jesus tells us today, 
whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will actually end up losing it. But whoever loses their life for me will, what? Find it. So Father, as we look to your wisdom today, sober moment, because we realize we, like Jesus, find ourselves in a wilderness moment. Which way will we take to greatness and glory? As the people of Jesus, we say, the way of the cross. The way of the cross. The way of Jesus is the way of the cross. And so, Lord, we hear your call. Come to me. Follow me. But you've got to deny yourself. There's a way that seems right to you, to conventional wisdom, but I am smarter than conventional wisdom. I am wisdom incarnate. I am the very wisdom of God. My name is Jesus, and I want to remake your life, and I want to transform your life, but you've got to follow me. And so, Lord, we just say yes to following you today. Thank you for overcoming and going to the cross so that all that you wanted to be made available to the world has now been made available through you. We love you, we treasure you, and we trust you. In Jesus' mighty name we pray, amen and amen. God bless you guys. You're dismissed. If you want prayer, come on up, and we will take communion tonight for encounter service. So there you go. See you tonight at 6. But if you need prayer, come on up. We'd love to pray with you.